Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Tom, let's set up our next guest. This is from Ben Laidler of eToro. This is what he had to say. Analysts are dramatically underestimating the recovery in company profits. They have hugely underestimated the earnings rebound for three quarters in a row. And Tommy thinks they will continue yeah. to do so. This is some of the nuances of the bull market. And with Ed Yardani and David Costin with us later, is a standout show. John, Ben Laidler, more than anyone I know, has consistently been shut up and get long. He's been doing that for pushing three years now. More than anyone else, he has reaffirmed his optimism week to week. The equity bull joins us right now. Ben Laidler, eToro, global market strategist. Ben, let's start there. Why do you think this will continue? So I look at forecasts from now. So consensus says that earnings actually fall next quarter, the quarter after that, and the quarter after that, that this was the peak. Uh, I disagree with that. You look forward to 2022. Consensus has 9% earnings growth. I mean, that just looks like a sort of placeholder that we haven't really got around to sort of looking at yet. Um, and, and again, you know, we're coming off just this huge earnings rebound, which the market consistently underestimates. I mean, just bear with me one second. I mean, last quarter... Coming in, we thought we were going to get 65% earnings growth. Coming out, we had 90. I mean, that, that's just a dramatic, dramatic, um, you know, earnings miss. And, and I think, that, again, there's more to come. I mean, growth, you know, is very, very high and very resilient yeah. to, you know, this third sort of virus wave. These concerns on margins, uh, I think this is sort of the peak of the margin pressure. And we just saw all-time high margins. So, you know, I think that's the sort of underlying driver, if you like, of why consensus is so bearish. But, you know, I, I think the margin pressure is right now. It's not, you know, it's, it's not in 12 months time. And that sort of top line remains, remains super strong. And, and people continue to underestimate the earnings leverage to that top line. I mean, companies took a lot of costs out right. um, over the last sort of 12 months or so. And, you know, that's where the mistake's been made. The, the leverage of earnings to that sort of incremental uh, improvement in revenues. Ben, the key phrase there for me is placeholder. You remember when the street had a conviction and they had a 21 belief, a 22 belief, and they'd even get out to June of 23 right now. I totally take your point on the timidity of the market. How should our viewers and listeners play that timidity when they look out to say, oh, I don't know, February of 22? Right. So, so I think earnings are being underestimated by maybe a factor of two for next year. And, and I think the way to think about that is, A, I think that gives more oxygen for this market to sort of keep moving up. Uh, and secondly, and as importantly, you know, as we're facing sort of the Fed about to make a sort of decision, decision on tapering, I think that's the sort of insurance policy to the risk here. I mean, earning valuations at 21 times, that's super high. You know, bond yields go up, the Fed starts tapering. I mean, those valuation numbers are probably going to keep coming down a bit. But the big offset to that, which I think we continue to underestimate, is that growth will um, more than offset that. And I think that's the pathway to this market uh, sort of continuing higher, even as we move through sort of Fed tapering and potentially lower valuations. Ben, what do you say to potential critics who say, look, take a look at the Delta variant that's spreading. Take a look at some of the shutdowns that we're seeing in China, some of the uh, potential regulatory actions that are slowing growth there. All of these issues, A, contribute to supply side constraints that will lead to ongoing margin pressures, and B, removes some China demand from the market. What do you say to people who say, no, these margin pressures are going to continue for a long time? I say, look at the data right now. 
So PPI, you know, producer prices, which we're going to get today, you know, minus consumer prices. You look at the PMIs, sort of input prices, minus output prices. It's really hard for me to see that you're going to see, you know, the discrepancy, the gap, that huge gap that we've seen over the last sort of six to nine months, you know, that really continuing. So I think, you know, margins are going to be under pressure, but I think that's going to be more than offset by this, uh, by, by the revenue rebound. I mean, just for example, just look at the sort of these classic reopening stocks. You know, those earnings are still down. 85% from where they were coming into the crisis. I mean, this reopening trade has, I would argue, hasn't even started yet. I mean, these reopening stocks have still underperformed wow. sort of work from home by 65%. Their earnings have still been, you know, absolutely decimated. And, you know, your average economy globally, it's still, you know, if you look at these sort of lockdown indices, they're, they're over 50, right? Relative to zero by definition before we came into this. Uh, and, you know, 85% of the world hasn't been fully vaccinated yet. So I think this sort of reopening trade, which is going to push revenues, which is going to push earnings, is, is, is barely to start started. And it, you know, may be delayed somewhat here. Absolutely. Um, but it's, it's, it's not derailed. And, and, and the macro day that we're seeing tells you we're just learning to live with this. I mean, this is the third wave. Um, you know, uh, we're a bit more vaccinated. We're a bit more used to you know, dealing with this. And I, I think, again, earnings are going to remain very resilient and the market's underestimating them. That is quite a statement to wrap things up. Ben Laidler of eToro, global market strategist. Ben, thank you. Right now, a massive joy. Michael Spence is any number of things, including a Nobel laureate. Yes, he's General Atlantic senior advisor, but he is someone who has thoughtfully rebuilt American education with his work at Stanford and then on to New York University. And the laureate joins us this morning from Palo Alto, Italy. This is something, folks, you need to know about surveillance, is these guys are on the shores. It's some fancy, gorgeous place, and they drop in whatever they want to drop in to pretend they're toughing it out in Palo Alto at Stanford. You're not at Stanford, are you, Professor Spence? I am not. Okay. I'm on the coast of Italy. Oh, very good. That's good to know. Right now, I want to know a, re a redo of your wonderful book on convergence of a decade ago. And I want to take a chapter there on multi-speed globalism and say it's convergence within what certainly we're seeing, a multi-speed pandemic. How do we come out of this with constructive convergence? Well, Tom, I, I mean, it's a very important question that you raise. So, so briefly, um, I think there's some serious question about whether the convergence is going to be fairly complete with respect to the low-income countries. I mean, they're adversely affected by, it's a nearly a perfect storm, uh, the pandemic with very, very slow vaccine rollout, the, the, <coughs> the uh, climate change is obviously accelerating, they have demographic problems, they have internal governance problems, so... So, you know, it was always going to be a kind of struggle to get there. But, but I think, you know, with digital technology coming, questioning the growth model and so on, I, I think, you know, we probably have to rethink this. And in, in the meantime, I mean, we have some important priorities before us. And I think item one on the list would be um, a, a real plan to roll out the vaccine globally. You have a cottage industry in consultancy on the Pacific Rim, and particularly to China. You have studied the domestic dynamics of China. What is our best practice to assist Beijing to diminish the use of coal? Um, you know, they have the technology to get this done. Um, and it's not clear to me why they aren't moving faster. 
Now, you know, China's far enough along in their economic development that they have a problem that's similar to ours, which is replacing coal and fossil fuels with green energy, um, I mean, electricity generation. Uh, and whereas a lot of, you know, earlier stage countries, you know, can have most of the electricity generation capacity to build so they can build it green, you know, ab initio, so to speak. Um, but I, I think, you know, the answer to that is I don't know. And I think we ought to have a serious talk in the context of what is now, uh, you know, globally perceived as a serious problem. I think we need acceleration everywhere. On a broader level, line. Michael, in order to lobby for an acceleration to uh, greenify the industries like coal and like uh, fossil fuels in general, there's a question of the labor market and whether some of the adaptation of the, U the U.S. and the Chinese economy actually helps the labor market, whether you can make an argument that it will actually uh, provide some sort of back tailwind, basically, to the improvements that the Biden administration and Xi Jinping would like to see. I think, I think there's a lot of merit in that argument, Lisa. I mean, you know, that with very large amounts of public sector and private sector investment, uh, which is what it's going to take to deal with this problem in China, in the United States, in Europe, um, there's going to be lots of, you know, economic activity and employment uh, associated with it. Now, you know, the flip side of the coin is this is a transition in the structure of the economy, so there'll be pockets of uh, distress that require some kind of support. But I think when you add it all up, it's a positive, provided the, provided the investment momentum is behind it. Is the investment momentum more likely to come from public entities or private entities? You know, what, what I, mean, I was talking with John Brown the, the other day, who's, you know, probably one of, one of the most knowledgeable people I know in, in, in the energy field, and he thinks it's a combination. Right. You know, I don't know exactly what the percentage is. Let's call it 50 50. We need public sector investment um, in a whole variety of kinds in infrastructure and research and stuff. But we need private sector investment to deliver the technologies that uh, that businesses are now demanding. I mean, business business broadly, globally, not completely, has committed to being part of the solution to this problem. So that then the question is, and what are we going to do? And the answer is. Um, a whole bunch of investment has to occur to provide solutions uh, in a whole variety of sectors. I, I think it's coming. Uh, whether it's coming fast mm -hmm. enough, um, I think is the open question. Your speech in Stockholm a few years ago, Professor Spence, was about signaling, about the mm -hmm. things that we do within our system and in our financial system that signal to us. What is the signal of this odd time we live in of massive monetary accommodation and particularly unprecedented fiscal stimulus in the United States. What are we signaling? I, I think what, what's, what's being signaled, and it's the central bank and the administration, is that, you know, in balancing off sort of, you know, potential inflation slash instability as opposed to sort of righting the ship in terms of inclusive growth, they're going for inclusive growth. Uh, and and there, I think if you got them privately, uh, they would say, "Yeah, I know we're running some risks on on the other side, but but it's worth it. We 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 had a, a terribly weak um, and unequal recovery from the great financial crisis. We're not doing it again, and, um, right. and we're going to, you know, 
fire all the guns. I, I mean, just to, to uh, John, if I may here, uh, Professor Spence, a guy named Boskin, a guy named John Taylor out at Palo Alto, Stanford. It looks a lot like Palo Alto, Italy, Michael Spence, but it's out at Stanford. They're going to take a more conservative tack to this and say, we can't trust the path to inclusive growth. How should the Biden administration respond to that in liberals worldwide? Well, you know, I think the Biden administration, it, you know, this is a personal opinion, uh, and I respect my colleagues who are, you know, at Stanford who are, I think, a little bit more conservative on this than I am. Possibly. But my view is that the deficit that we faced uh, in America that caused our growth patterns to be um, out, of, out of kilter in terms of inclusiveness were, were investment deficits. Some of it's infrastructure, some of it's human capital, some of it's, you know, Kind of new technology and so on. I think they're trying to address that. Now, they have pressure on the left to do a whole lot more than that, um, it, you know, and make the government a whole lot bigger. And, and to be perfectly honest, you know, beyond a certain point, I don't think that's going to fly in the American context. I mean, it, you know, when you, when you start getting governments that are noticeably larger than what Americans broadly are comfortable with, they'll, they'll balk uh, and we won't go down that road. On to the midterms next year, politically speaking. Anyway, Michael, good to catch up. Appreciate your time, sir, as always. The wonderful Michael Spence there, Nobel laureate and General Atlantic senior advisor. Well, let's get one view right now with Ed Yardeni, Yardeni Research founder and chief investment strategist. Ed, let's start there. The path to 5K on the S&P 500 next year. Just walk us through the framework for you, Ed. Well, you know, forecasting the stock market is actually very easy. It's only two variables. All you have to do is get PE and E right. Uh, the, the, the trick is getting them right. Uh, and um, the, the challenge up ahead here, I think, is the valuation multiple is already quite elevated at uh, around 21, 22. It's been an earnings-driven bull market. Uh, we've had a melt-up uh, really since uh, March 23rd of last year. And initially, that melt-up was led by the PE uh, forward PE went from 12.9 to 23 uh, by um, September of last year. And since May of last year, earnings have been on fire. They're going to be up 80% on a year-over-year -year basis just in the second quarter. It should be up about 40, 45, 50% for the year as a whole. Uh, so uh, I think the market's going higher. And uh, my bullishness is based on my perception that there's no recession ahead. There's no credit crunch ahead. And there's still higher earnings ahead. And Joe Denny, when you took your PhD at Yale University with a privileged faculty at the time, I can't say enough about the quality of Yale in 1976. The Dow migrated from 1,000 out to where we are now at 36,000. On the way was a Carter malaise. As you know, from 76 to roughly 82, there was just a flatness. Is the thing we're not seeing here is not the up and down of the financial media, but the ability to just go flat and rest? for a while? I think the huge story when you compare the 1970s, which was uh, uh, called the the Great Inflation Era, uh, and the uh, what I think is going is the roaring 2020s uh, era right now, is productivity. Productivity collapsed in the 1970s. Yep. And uh, this time around, productivity is up from 0.6% uh, on a 20-quarter on a basis. I try to smooth it out. 
Uh, that's what it was uh, not too long ago at the end yeah. of uh, 2015. Right now, it, we just got a new number. It's up uh, 2%. I think it's going to 4%. Yeah. Lisa, uh, Greg Grandin at Yale University, the acclaimed historian, calls it the dismal 70s. I don't hear that right now. No, no one's saying it's the dismal 70s. Some people saying that we might get some sort of inflationary pressures that resemble something last seen perhaps closer to 70s than we've seen in recent decades. Ed, how much is your call, 5,000 by the year end of 2022, predicated on Treasury yields remaining where they are? Or around, uh, or around there. Well, I I have to say that uh, this year has been uh, a tricky one uh, for forecasting the bond market, and uh, I was uh, I wasn't surprised that it went to 1.7 percent back in uh, March. I was surprised that it went back to 1.12 percent recently, uh, but now I'm not surprised again that it's heading back up to 1.35 percent and. Uh, I think we could be at 2% by the end of the year or sometime next year. And I think that would be clearly a sign that the economy is uh, getting a little bit uh, closer to normal than it had been for quite some time. Uh, Now, that could weigh on the uh, the valuation multiple, I I suppose. And... um, but, you know, 5,000 is actually a fairly conservative uh, outlook. Um, it's the end of, of next year. There's uh, pl- plenty of time for earnings to grow along, the, along that time. And by the way, by the end of next year, the market's going to be really uh, discounting 2023. I know it's weird to be talking about that far out, but that's what the market does. And I, I got earnings 205 this year, $205 this year for the S&P 500. Next year, 200 and, 15 and then in 2013 looking that far out it could be up 240 uh, bucks so uh, and i think i think on your point i think profit margins are going to hold up surprisingly well because of the productivity story the story then comes down to the second point then it's the multiple and if we want to yeah. talk about 23 we'll be talking about rate hikes can we really trade positively through tapering given the amount of stimulus we've had from this federal reserve into a yeah. conversation about rate hikes well, John, you know, uh, th- this uh, tapering talk's been around for a long time. It's not like a surprise. We've had previous tapering episodes, which were more on the surprising side. This one certainly isn't. As a matter of fact, everybody's kind of wondering why they haven't started already, given some of the economic data that, that we've had. Uh, so I, I think the market's going to handle tapering just fine. By the way, M2, some people are getting are starting to freak out about uh the M2 growth rate, uh, mm-hmm. what they don't really appreciate is that M2 today is $5 trillion higher than it was before the pandemic. There's still just a tremendous amount of liquidity just sitting there. Uh, people look at velocity. I, I look at the other side of velocity. If you take M2 divided by nominal GDP, it's almost a year's worth of M2 now in nominal GDP. It's an all-time record high. Uh, so there's lots of liquidity out there that's still kind of uh, pent- pent-up supply of liquidity. Still bullish. Ed Yardeni, it's got to catch up, sir. Yardeni Research Founder and Chief Investment Strategist. Right now, a treat for Lisa Bramwitz and myself, Craig Moffat and Michael Nathanson. They pick up the pieces after the Olympics, the streaming frenzy that's out there. And also, and we, we do a tangent here, Lisa, on what's going on in Washington. Let me go to Craig Moffat on this. This is his wheelhouse as well. Craig, this is a story not told, which is we're almost on the edge of where there is a right to the internet versus a privilege of the internet. To me, it's a real subtle sea change. Are we at the point with Biden legislation that we're going to demand pristine internet coast to coast? 
Well, first of all, thank you for having us back on. Uh, Always a pleasure to be here. Uh, You know, I'm not sure about that. That's been a push-pull through the last, what, five administrations. And um, and this this question of is broadband uh, a utility, should it be treated as a utility um, versus uh, that that the private sector has actually done a pretty good job bringing broadband to Americans. Um, And that tension, I think, is appropriate. I don't think it's going to change. My takeaway from, from what's happened in Washington, and look, this shouldn't be a surprise, is despite the fact that we've swung back to a Democrat administration, Biden is who he said he was. He's a moderate. And, and, and actually what we've seen fairly consistently is moderation in, in most of the policies around broadband. There was some talk about price regulation and some flirtations uh, in the early drafts mm-hmm. of the infrastructure plan. That's not where we ended up. Uh, so I think overall what we're yeah. seeing is, is reasonably friendly to the incumbents. There's so many things to talk to the two of you about. Your acclaimed research here on the hardware of the media we look at every day. And again, the media is content is king. And Michael Nathanson, if I could go to you, what are you prepared for? What are you steeled for in the streaming wars? Where's the curiosity right now? Well, morning, Tom. What I'm waiting for is someone to tap out. Someone who looks at, I guess we already saw Warner Media and Discovery merge in acknowledgement that this is a hard business to uh, to master. But I'm waiting to see what Viacom and Comcast do. They're both too small to win this. So Craig and I are both waiting for someone to, to realize that this is not a great business to chase. It's probably better to be a content seller than uh, you know a fifth rated streamer. So we're waiting for more consolidation here. Um, I don't know when that's going to be, but to us, that has to happen. Well, Michael, just to follow up on that, are we past peak content? <laughs> Lisa, um, I think we're a year, two years away. You know, Apple's is going to put more money to work. Amazon will as well. So I would say the next one or two years gets peak. There's clearly, to your question, there's clearly too much content out there. There's not enough time in the day. The economics are forcing lower, lower returns. Uh, but I think we're one, two years away from everyone realizing that they need to change their approach, right? There's just too much capital chasing uh, chasing this opportunity. Craig, which really wears uh, on the hardware store of, uh, story of things, basically, that regardless of who wins the content wars, the bottom line is more people are going to be streaming. And so perhaps is that the pure play going forward to basically hinge on the streaming phenomenon that's only getting stronger, even if there is this war on content that perhaps has created some peaks in pricing, at least down the road? Well, I, I wish I could say yes. Um, there, there's certainly going to be a lot of demand for, for bits and bytes. The question is really whether there's a mechanism for the industries I cover, telecom and, and cable, to monetize that. Um, you, know, you could make the argument that, that in this particular gold rush, the ones that are selling the pickaxes and the shovels are not so much the network operators, but the network equipment suppliers. Um, who really are, are I think, seeing a, a serious boom. For the, for the wireless operators, monetizing incremental traffic has always been problematic. And for the cable operators, mm-hmm. um, they have a better business structurally than the wireless operators. It, it tend to be less competition. But they, too, generally don't charge extra for, right. for the throughput. 
If you're just joining us on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio, we are thrilled to bring you both Craig Moffat and Michael Nathanson of Moffat Nathanson, years at Sanford Bernstein, and uh, truly definitive on all that we do in media. This is a joint question to both of you, and then Lisa's going to pound in with another uh, question. Michael Nathanson, I'm going to let you go first. What did the two of you learn about the Olympics that NBC has to tattoo to their brain as they go to China and beyond? Michael first. Well, Tom, uh, great question. They need to change. And who am I? I'm an analyst, but. No, stop. You're Michael Nathanson. They're going to exactly. listen to this. Go. Okay. They need a constant, always on Barker channel where I can go 24 7 to watch Olympics. It was a hodgepodge, Tom. Yep. Right? You didn't know what was on, where it was. There was no excitement. They basically need to take over either NBC or USA. <clears throat> And make it 24-7 Olympics and show game, show everything live on broadcast and linear. Then use digital to basically augment the non-core, you know, right. events. I think ESPN has done a great job. They figured that out. So ESPN uses ESPN one for all their main events, and they have all the other ESPN channels for the secondary and tertiary events. They need to rethink it. I, I thought it was um, really poorly done. It was a sad. It was a sad. Right. Okay. Craig, you're, brief, Craig you're briefing Brian Roberts here, and you're looking more at the hardware as well. What do you tell Brian Roberts to do next on the Olympics? Well, I'll, I'll tell you. So, you know, I think first you have to to recognize in the diagnosis of the problem here. You know, rating, ratings were down forty one percent from five years ago total day. Um, a large part of that is the fact that there are just a lot fewer television households to uh, to, to watch the Olympics, right? Um, the, the cord cutting that has accumulated over the last five years um, has left a mark and it hurts. It, the, the problem that that creates though is actually deeper than that because think about the machine that Comcast is or that NBC is in creating the run up to the Olympics and, and making people interested and engaged in the athletes and the stories around the Olympics. If ratings are down 40% or more in the months leading up to the Olympics, then so much of that is being lost that yeah. the engagement when the Olympics comes around just isn't what it used to be. And I think the real problem now is, is trying to figure out whether um, the, the whole ecosystem that surrounds the Olympics of public personal interest stories about athletes and, and national pride and all that sort of thing is permanently damaged because fundamentally the Olympics are a made for TV event and we're just in a post TV world right well, now. Well, hold on a second. That's where I wanted to go, Craig. Can we extrapolate out beyond the Olympics to sports in general that perhaps cable news doesn't capture the same kind of audience and frankly, some of these sports don't capture the same sort of audiences that goes hand in hand in a sea change that fundamentally undermines cable's prowess in this industry? Well, can I say, Lisa, it goes to your question to me about there's just too much content out there, right? There's just too much content. Discoveries become impossible. To Craig's point, we've lost 30, 40% of the audience the past five years. It's an incredible challenge, right? And sports rights keep going up. Um, so we wonder what happens in four or five years when the next NFL contract really kicks in in its heart uh, in terms of the heart of the escalation. It's a challenge. And I think I think you ha you need consolidation here. You need less content being produced. And uh, you well, know, to eliminate some of the clutter we see right now all, all over the dial, basically, and all over streaming. And Craig, from your perspective, what would it do to some of these cable giants if they sold the rights to some of the sports streaming? 
Well, for the, the broadband providers, um, that is the infrastructure providers, the short answer is not much. Um, they're, they're to some extent agnostic about what travels over the networks. In fact, I think they've fought for years to say, we don't want to have to carry every regional sports net, for example, on the basic tier and make everybody in America pay for sports, even if they don't watch it. The problem has been that the programmers have been too strong and have demanded basic tier carriage. Mm -hmm. That's clearly breaking down right now. And, uh, and you wonder whether the, the straw that broke the camel's back will be one or two more of these networks being withdrawn to the point that the sports system as we know it today right. really unravels. And, and you're certainly seeing that on the regional sports side. Um, the, the national sports side is held in better um, because Disney has so much power in, in its negotiations. But the sports ecosystem is feeling a lot of stress. Got to leave it there. Craig Moffat, Michael Nathanson, too, just too short a visit, but always very generous of you to join us today with Moffat Nathanson. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.